Fuck the hat. You're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. Today, we're feasting just in time for Thanksgiving on The Ride, an episode that had the fictional feast of St. Elzir coursing through its veins. Based, of course, on the real feast of St. Gerard outside the church of St. Lucy, Newark, 7th Avenue, 1st Ward. St. Gerard was a native of Naples and thought to have the ability to read souls. Certainly a saint perfect for the guys in this thing of ours. This episode was written by Terrence Winter, who also did the DVD commentary. A favorite pull quote from that, this was an episode all about the quote, thrills, distractions from everyday life in the form of religion, drugs, food, depending on the person. For me, a big part of this episode is the ride I take when I hear dolphins and the sounds of Fred Neal generally. Directed by Alan Taylor, it originally aired on May 7th, 2006. HBO synopsis, Christopher makes a surprise announcement. Paulie pays for cutting costs at the Feast of St. Elzir. Tony goes old school while on a trip with Christopher. With the feast in full swing, Liz LaServa tells Carmela that Adriana was killed by Christopher, who has a relapse. Paulie's woes worsen as he deals with some bad medical news and the wrath of Bacala. Okay, we open on Chris watching an installment of the Saw franchise, I believe part two. A little opposition research. Jason Blum over here. The Saw guy, what's his name again? Hacksaw? Jigsaw. Anyway, he's asking on screen, how much love will you shed to stay alive, Michael? A nod, perhaps, to the esteemed actor who plays the role of Christopher. And what a poignant shot when you think about what, or who, I should say, he gave up. Literally to stay alive. And the timing of that line that I missed without captions on is an extra knife twist, given who we're about to be introduced to momentarily. Also, Tobin Bell, the voice of Jigsaw, also starred in Army of One. Remember? The core, the core, the core. Of course you remember. Fuck, we play in memory now? Also, and I think I said this on that pod, something about him always reminds me of Chase. We see Chris through the blinds, outside, looking in. Always a reminder and reason why this show is so spectacularly special from the get-go. A fly-on-the-wall look into a world few of us would ever get access to, even tangentially. Also. Very impactful messaging here. Chris is split 
by the vertical blinds. Three ways. Three ways. The good Chris. Chris, Chris. And that in between fugue state Chris that bleeds into and overtakes everything else. Also, love the way that it opens on smoke rising. Chris, of course, one of the legendary stickmen when it comes to wielding a cigarette. Graduated from the same institution for that as Johnny Sack did. And whatever that place is called, by the way, no doubt has a wing named after the latter, if not the whole fucking rec center. The John Sacrimony Center for Elocution and Dexterity, or something to that effect. So, Chris's apartment looks different. He moved. Place is spruced up considerably. Could benefit from an interior decorator, though. I believe he knows a guy. Note the picture on the wall next to the TV. What looks to be like a window to nowhere. Couldn't help but think of Chris looking out the window when he was made and seeing the raven in Fortunate Son. And the way he's gazing in that direction makes you wonder if he's watching Saw or staring through that opening in the window. I don't know, looking for his ark or something. Then a woman comes out of the bathroom. Actor Cara Buono, playing Chris's new girlfriend, Kelly. Cara, of course, has gone on to do great work, Stint on Mad Men in season four, which earned her an Emmy nod, and Stranger Things. As far as first impressions go, a knockout introductory look. Short denim skirt, furry pink top, blown out hair. She's living her own personal Mariah Carey music video. And right off the bat, we see her as a more refined version of Adriana. A little Farther along, that guinea gulch. Even her fingernails are more subtle. More North Caldwell than North Ward. She's nervous. They're late for something. Nice double entendre, as she's biologically late, too. Also a nice nod to this episode's title. At a minimum, a double entendre. More like a triple or quadruple one, as we'll see as we ride through this together. She says she's pregnant. Tries to apologize. What for? If T would have heard that, I can't help but think he might jump in with, what are you sorry for? You're a knockout. A 10. And he? He's average. At best. He stops her. She says she'll set up an abortion appointment. She's so accommodating and scared her character coming out with the brevity of a Hemingway novel. He stops her again with the same swiftness with which he takes a bump. Says, let's get married. Fucking Al Green over here. But wait, what's going on? How could this happen? Who is she? Where did she come from? Was this just a random one-night thing that turned into something else? Does the show not find his personal life interesting enough to catalog anymore? Is this just another example of the regularness of life changing everything in 60 seconds or less? 
fuck the exposition, I guess. And besides, what am I doing? Malapropping Nicolas Cage movies now? Whatever the rationale, it's clear that in the time that's elapsed since long-term parking, Chris has moved on. Guy was tired of waiting in vain. Cue Bob Marley. The syncopated swing of that track lulls you into submission, like parts of this episode. Until the pregnancy, she was just a girl, to quote Gwen Stefani. But now, she's the Princess of Wales. What's her fairy tale going to look like? Will it include her roller skating around her new house in Fairfield, getting lost to Duran Duran? That'll make sense if you watched season four of The Crown. Chris says they'll drive out to Atlantic City to make a day out of it. Romantic as fuck. Forget the ring, bending the knee, pulling the handle on some slot machines and watching the big screen at the sports book was more top of mind. I'll come back to Chris's proposal patterns later. She says yes, in the only way she can. Christopher, I love you. Note her, Christopher, was muted and subdued. But there was a thickness to it like we're used to. Same, but different. But Adriana's all the way. Also, miss her. This moment reminds you how much. And speaking of... I actually couldn't have kids and I wanted them so bad. The one who ran out on you? The lies we tell ourselves, like taking regular doses of medication to get through the day. Also, again, the writers know we're thinking about her right there, likely in a positive light. And this is how they swiftly expose that and turn it on its head. Like when you're ahead in the count and one Mariano Rivera fastball later. Different story. She asks, <laughs> she asks, the one that ran out on you? Makes you wonder what else he said about her during their pillow talk sessions. He becomes angry. I bet she's having some other asshole's kid, though, that fucking tramp. <laughs> Kelly looks like she's crying. The way that came out, kind of looks like she's laughing a bit, too. Wonder how many takes that took. Terry pointed out here that Chris was a master of revisionist history. They all are, in a way, though. It's the only way to soldier through this thing in one piece. Compartmentalize and revise. It's a very real psychological state, too. Rewriting our scripts to soothe our inner minds. Cut from a conception announcement to a church, the result of an immaculate conception. St. Patrick's in New Jersey. This church, of course, appears in the show four times, I believe. The pilot, another toothpick, watching too much television, and this episode. Beautiful church interior, stained glass, Pretty much shoots itself. Patsy and Polly are inside charging toward the altar. Well, Polly's mostly charging. Patsy's on a different kind of journey. Stops to pay his respects. 
But Jean-Paul Galtieri's got no time for that shit right now. He heads straight to the statue of St. Elzir. Not really Elzir, a stand-in, but that only makes the storyline work that much better when you know that. How transactional and obtuse the underpinnings of the festival organizers' motivations are. Elzir's the patron saint of Zeppelis. Red, patron saint of printing dollar bills through fried confections. Zeppel is, of course, a kind of Italian donut, if you will, sold by a centrally located calzone vendor, as we'll see in a bit. So, St. Elzir, he was French. That must have taken a little longer for Silvio to wrap his head around. The Battle of Hearts and Minds and all. Came of age in the 1300s. Before becoming a saint, he was a polymath of sorts. A leader of men, a diplomat, and an executive. Captain of industry. Global thinker. He was a deputy to the guy who oversaw Sicily back when it was a kingdom. That's his nexus, I imagine, to this thing of ours. The feast the show is depicting is a fictionalized version of the Feast of St. Gerard by way of the OG Feast of San Gennaro, an Italian-American invention dating back to the 1920s that takes place on and around Mulberry Street in Manhattan every year in the fall. St. Gennaro, by the way, was depicted in a painting by none other than Caravaggio. Gennaro, of course, is the patron saint of Naples. Most of his history is legend and unverified. But one part in particular I found interesting and relevant was that after years of persecution and certain torture, he was found to be virtually unscathed. Made me think, guy never met Christopher Moltisanti and Brendan Fallone. Playing the hits. A little 46 long reference for you. The feast as a character of sorts has been on screen in multiple staples of the genre. In two, when Vito Corleone tracks and kills Don Fanucci. In three, when Vincent Corleone clips Joey Zaza. It's also in Mean Streets. And most recently, Billions. It's been a million other places too, but those are the big four that were top of mind. The statue? Patsy says he could use a shot of lacquer. <laughs> Love the way that word lands here. Polly snaps. Fix that halo, too. <laughs> Gets me every time. The way he wags his hand. You can't write that. His hand wag blocks Mount Matumbo's. Chase down style. After getting shushed by a lone congregant, they head to the back to meet a Father Jose. They were supposed to talk to Father Felix, but he's having bypass surgery. What are you going to do? That or he wasn't a tough enough negotiator for Polly this year. They needed to call somebody up from the farm system to lock up a 5X ask. Next man up. A Mr. Russomano is also there from the Neighborhood Association. Polly knows him 
and vice versa. Paul used to be an altar boy at this church, we learn. The spinoffs and histories that probably exist there. A mine of possible anecdotes given what we know of him now and his upbringing in particular. I mean, the way Mr. Russomano looked at him, what does he know that Paulie didn't? What stains? And I don't mean of the glass variety. Anyway, what's this, Unsolved Mysteries now? Robert Stack over here? They're all there to discuss the Feast of St. Elzir, said in the same voice as Rocky. Details. Paulie explains their part is done through a non-profit. Yeah, right. They close the streets for five days, hire vendors, rides, etc., push the statue up and down the block. All said, you get your end. Plug and fucking play. On that last part, though, the church's end, Father Jose says, 10K feels a little light. The church shakedown begins. Echoes of three. Father Jose says he realizes certain neighborhood traditions. What a blanched onion of a statement. Thinly veiled code. But given current costs, an increase is long overdue. Father Jose's ask? 50K. A 5X jump. Right for the jugular. Negotiating like his life depends on it. Chris Voss over here. The reason? A new soup kitchen for the homeless and a reading program for bilingual children. Two things top of fucking Polly's list. Polly says they got bills too. Security, electric, sanitation, fuel costs. At least two or three of those things circulate right back into this thing of ours, by the way. They go back and forth. Father Jose breaks down a line-item budget to Polly that includes leasing out land he doesn't even own. Sounds about right, though. Taxation without representation. Pauly, lathered up, counters with the church's ability to bankroll pedophilia lawsuits. Cut to Patsy's side-eye. Wonder what that was all about. Pauly continues, This deal has been in place since Johnny Soprano's era. Father Jose, acting as though he knows, though doesn't really care who Johnny Soprano was, says, Times have changed. Thinking he can intimidate Father Jose and get the last word, Polly says, some things don't, as he leans in. But Father Jose is not done. Throws the kitchen sink at this thing. You say some things don't change. This feast is over 100 years old, started in a spirit of giving. Then says because he senses a criminal element is at play, he feels resistant to hand over the statue and gold hat for the feast. That's his trump card. That statue and the procession around it is the lifeblood of this whole thing. Terry makes an interesting point in the commentary here. Says these guys have become more character than criminal. And the real world isn't as intimidated or afraid of them as they once were. And we're seeing that play out here. To quote what Patsy said last episode, It's over for the little guy. 
But for 50 grand, all is forgotten. We can be complicit, even the church, for a price. They shake. But you wonder right there if Paulie's got something in store for the father. Would he? Could he? Look what he's capable of doing to his own mother. And he's already disavowed the church once before, back in from where to eternity. Paulie and Patsy walk out. They're not paying the 50K. Mr. Rusamano, hey, that rhymes with Kusamano, shrugs, was in on the con from the start. Thought maybe having him in the room would soften Polly a bit. Not exactly. Polly walks up to the statue. Fuck the hat. Made of rings, by the way, from parishioners who put up their wedding bands for the honor. They storm off. Thought for a second there, Polly was going to pick up the statue and walk out. I mean, who the fuck was going to stop him? But either way, if costs go up, it's not coming out of his end. Fuck the hat. Cut to the bing. From a church to the bing. Counterbalance. Girls dancing. Silvio counting cash. Speaking of caricatures instead of criminals. White suit. Purple shirt look. Reminds me of the Pacino character in Dick Tracy. Big boy. Not the outcast one. Though he could probably rock that look too, no problem. Tony's complaining about the carding business. Talks about an Eddie Lind, Allegheny carding. They're raising the tipping fee on solid waste. A tipping fee isn't a tip, by the way. It's a charge based on a given quantity of waste received at a waste processing facility. Chris rolls up. He says he needs a backup on a trip to PA. Paulie dodges. Says he's busy managing the feast. Vice president in charge of Calzones. He asks where the fuck Chris has been. There's music playing in the background. Flash and Crash. Fitting. By Rocky and the Riddlers. A 60s band out of Seattle. He flashes a ring on his finger. This just after wedding rings were discussed at the church. Nice continuity. You are now looking at a newly married man, he says. That was fast. No glorious ceremony for the heir apparent. Also note how, as Chris is describing his nuptials, a stripper slides down a pole over his shoulder. Too good. Tony wonders what the fuck brought this on. Mentions Kelly by name. He obviously knows who she was, even though we didn't. Chris says a visit from the stork. There's a bit of old European folklore that has held up over time. Comes from a Hans Christian Andersen story called The Storks. Sill wonders why he didn't pull out. Always wondered the scientific efficacy of that statement. Things that make you go, hmm. Then Chris gets sentimental. Pulls out a speech like he just won an Emmy. T's leadership, AA, building blocks. Home, family. Then he layers on the hypocrisy threefold. When offered a drink, 
Just water for me. My son will be my strength. Notice his preference of a son over a daughter. That preference seems to be the case today, too. U.S. News took a poll of people who said if they were only able to have one child, they would pick a boy over a girl. Second place was no preference. Girls were last place. Specific reasons weren't cited. But I wonder what Tony would think when reflecting on Meadow and AJ. Notice how Tony brushes his nose after a whiff of all that bullshit. You can smell it through your screen. Paulie gets a call from a doctor's office. He's got to pay up for a missed appointment. He says, talk to the doc. I don't pay for missed appointments. Wonder what the letterhead of that memo off Polly's desk looked like and what it said. They all toast the baby. Polly leans over to Patsy to call Freddie at DeSorbo's. Now there's a real DeSorbo's up in Connecticut. Not sure if this is the same one. But if that guy wants to sponsor a cannoli eating contest, Polly better see an envelope by tomorrow. Polly, of course, anticipating mounting bills for this festival that was once a business, but now looks to be more like a cost pit. Speaking of pits, cut to an Allegheny truck pulling up around a landfill. Tony, Chris, and Allegheny's guy chat up the new particulars of their business. Something to do with the way station guy being on board. A scam. What else? And that's it. They had to drive all the way out there for that? Allegheny guy asks if they know how to get back. Chris says he map blasted it. Now, Chris is the only guy in the history of the earth to know how to use or vocalize map blast. Never heard it before. Haven't heard it since. But it was an actual thing. Came out in the mid-90s by a company called Vicinity. Microsoft bought them and incorporated the technology into MSN Maps, which is now fully incorporated into Bing, which I was actually surprised to learn still exists. That, of course, is Microsoft's search engine. Shockingly, it boasts 450 million monthly active users, mouse, and processes 10.5 billion queries per month. For context, Google processes 168 billion queries per month. 1.7 billion of those queries are from me looking up Soprano stuff, by the way. Slow fade to Chris and T in the car. Lost. They're near Pittsburgh. Looked like a couple of vote counters in Allegheny County. Late for their shift for a second there. Who knows how well that's going to age, but hey, it's out there. The music in T's truck. All right now. Freeze. All right now. British band. Song came out in 1970. Still fresh as ever. Funny how that works. By the way, lots of featured music mid-show this episode. I think more than ever before, to be honest. T needs to pull over to piss. Doing so, he just happens to stumble on some guys in the back loading or stealing or a combination of both. Chris says they look like bikers. 
He notices wooden crates, signaling good wine. Chris reaches for his gun, and T backs right up to the load. The crates read, Pichon, Longueville, Poyac. I'll spare you the Mr. Wonderful pronunciation, but the first part is the name of the winery. The last part is the area of the Bordeaux region the wine comes from. Back on Chris and T, this sequence, this is their lingua franca. Nothing more needs to be said. No debate, no committee, no Ben Franklin pros and cons test, no opt-outs or opt-ins, just instinctual action. They both hop out, Chris pops the trunk, Tony makes a grab. The thrill and excitement of it all is captured in both their eyes. Illegality is fun as hell if you're numb to the consequences or insulated from them to the degree that these guys are. They're not doing it so much for the score, but rather to hone their craft almost. Taking their blade to the whetstone, lest they go dull. They've got about six crates loaded when the two guys return, coming out with an ATM machine. What the fuck? Who the fuck are you guys? That's who I am, you little fucking easy. Whoa, whoa. On the ground, I'll blow your greasy fucking heads off. They ask if they're cops. Come on, guy. Cops in an Escalade? They say, you're fucking with the Vipers here, asshole. Now, that motorcycle club is fictitious. But, true story, I think I've mentioned this before, but my first production studio was in a warehouse downtown. And one of my neighbors was a motorcycle social club for the Mongols the landlord had listed the place as a florist when I signed the lease. But that was just a front. I found out about it when stuff started falling off my wall in the middle of the night, setting off my alarm. I'd get phone notifications at like 2 a.m. of noise in my building and freak out. I put a note under their door one day letting them know some stuff had broken, and the next thing you know, I get a call from a guy called, get this, Menace. Imagine the look on my face as I'm storing that name into my phone, by the way. That wasn't his real name, but that's what he was called by his crew. Then, before you know it, I'm having full-on text threads with this guy over the next several months. He told me his sister ran the place, and they paid their lease in cash every month. In person. We even met face-to-face once, and he showed me around. He told me they were a 1% club. And I literally thought he was referring to their net worth. He mentioned something about them on CNN. So I went home. Nah, fuck that. I queued up the CNN thing on my phone in my car and promptly shit my pants. Anyway, everything was cool. Perfectly good neighbors during business hours. I even donated a toy to their annual Christmas drive for the kids. Good guys. but. I was out of there three weeks before my lease expired. Anyway, all this is to say that every night I went home to my wife and said some variation of, I'm with the Vipers. Or, I talked to the Vipers today. Chris likens their club to a Girl Scout troop. Good one. And he who points the gun holds the high ground made me remember how when the tables were turned and Tony had a gun pointed at him. 
He's hustling behind Chris, loading more crates. Once the truck is full, says to hit it. Chris blows out one of their tires. Again, if he didn't write the book on this stuff, he contributed a chapter to it. This is their lingua franca. Chris is a technician at his craft, despite his Achilles heel shortcomings. The Vipers rush at him, or slither, as Vipers probably do. T drops a case, probably out of fear of getting tackled. But also remember, I doubt he's supposed to be doing that much heavy lifting after the surgery. Chris fires multiple shots their way and keeps firing as they pull out. They fire back, and he hits one. I hit him! I fucking hit him! Again, the throwback glee of both of them here is palpable. T pulls the corner. Love that. Great visual cut here. Music perfectly synced. Still on the song. All right now. One of the few feel-good moments in the show. How long will it last? Cut to them laughing and celebrating the hall. T pulls up someplace. Rod's Steakhouse in Morristown, New Jersey. Chris says it was awesome. Fucking old school shit. T says, opportunity knocked. Kind of like it did for Eminem. Chris says, knocked? Kick the fucking door in. Kind of like it did for Biggie. Also, super tenuous, but what am I if not that at a minimum? Brad Gray, a key figure behind the existence of this show in the first place, once produced a movie called Opportunity Knocks, starring Dana Carvey and, wait for it, Robert Loggia. Feech. As they exit the car, T winces. Says he thinks he sprained his ankle. Now, my NBA hat always goes on whenever I hear of ankle injuries. High ankle sprain? DL? Never for T. Teflon brawn of his trade, especially when it counts. T grabs a couple of bottles from 1986. Made me wonder if Sinatra would think that was a very good year. Chris, sensing a financial opportunity, which actually is hilarious when we hear what he did with his share of the crates, show me the money. Fucking Rod Tidwell over here. Inside, T asks about their corkage fee. They laugh as if it even mattered. They sit, they dine. How about that prick's face when he saw the gat? <laughs> Grizzly Adams, motherfucker. Oh, bubba. Whoa, take it easy. <laughs> Don't away with the vipers. Of course, a great reference to a surprisingly more culturally relevant figure outside of this show. Thanks to memes. Grizzly Adams, of course, the principal figure in The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, 1974 film based on a novella that later became a TV series on NBC. The character was based on John Grizzly Adams, a California mountain man. True story. The bear that is depicted on California's state flag was inspired by one of Adams' drawings of the same. Also, Sopranos Connectivity. Adams was a figure in the Western, 
The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, referenced by Tony in Live Free or Die. Adams wasn't a mountain man by choice, kind of like Tony wasn't a gangster by choice. Rather, after being accused of murder, he fled. The Grizzly Adams brand delivered. The film was made for only 140K, but returned 65 million at the box office. T mocks the Vipers reference, much the same way he thought of Deluxe's street cred. Wow. Makes you think back to how varied and dimensional this season alone has been so far. Costa Mesa right now feels like a million miles away. The restaurant vibe is oldish money. Sign outside reads, proper attire required. Read, when in doubt, overdress. He starts talking about the wine, how good it is. Chris immediately holds back. Perhaps regrets about what he did in California. An unrelenting tea keeps swish swashing the wine in his mouth with each sip. Intentional or not, insensitive to the plight of his capo. Or is it deliberate? Giving him enough rope to hang himself. Just wanted to let that thought linger for a sec. Chris admits he nearly shit himself when they fired back. Guy's about to be a dad after all. Also admits he misses the wine, but starts talking of discipline, setting limits. Here comes that whiff again. But his limits are like a blanched onion too. T doesn't have to twist his fucking arm. Pours him a glass, and there you have it. Is Murmur going to barge in through those doors any second now like a superhero? Outside the restaurant, they both exit wasted. One glass clearly turned to many. They're stumbling to the car. T goes to the trunk, takes out another bottle for a nightcap, while Chris gets a Swiss Army knife from the console. I've had one in my glove box ever since. You know, for those contentious, rough-and-tumble Trader Joe's parking lots. Chris starts reminiscing the shit we've been through, the shit we'd done. Fucking three musketeers. Musketeer. What's that all about? A lot of backstory there. But who's number three? Tony B? They pass the bottle back and forth. T says they have a bond that's very special. Then, foreshadowing irony perhaps, Chris says, You saved my life in a lot of ways. T says you've been there for me too. Don't think I don't know that. But other than Adriana, really, when? Okay, maybe the Ralph thing. They talk about the past, Chris being young and stubborn. But the overarching message here has been that Tony's always had his back. I'll probably touch on that notion again before the series is over. Then we cut to a flashback. The first time I saw it, I thought it was season one. The whole, you in or you out. Chris at the front door like that. 
but it's him coming to the house to tell T about Adriana. Also, rare to see Tony being the one to open the door and not someone else. This was originally supposed to be part of long-term parking, right before Silvio drives with Adriana. But Chase wanted to pull it for the surprise element. It was almost a lost scene. One of their most powerful moments together, too. Think about that. But it found its way back to the show here. The scene. You know I've always been loyal to you, T. Tony, of course, enough with the preambles, says, what are you trying to tell me, Chris? Who breaks down, but's able to get two words out. Adriana, and after a long pause, feds. Chris says he doesn't know how much she gave them, but thinks it's a lot. A lot. On what basis? What did she really know, objectively? Tony checks him for wires. Chris sobs harder. How could you even think that? I mean, in all fairness to Tony, it's kind of to be expected, right? And fair game, especially after what happened with Pussy. Chris says he can't be the one to do it. Breaks down even more. He knows she's done for. And to his credit, thinks better than to try and figure out a way to salvage it. But also, his self-preservation trumps anything else. Tony hugs him and pulls his hair simultaneously. That's their relationship in a nutshell. Part hug, part vigorous shake. Says he'll take care of it. Tony gives him specific exit instructions. Chris storms up the stairs. And we cut back to their night moment outside. Chris says, I love you, man. Mouthpiece for every drunk guy at one point or another. Bud Light did a whole series of commercials centered around that statement in the 90s. Even got Charlton Heston, Moses himself, to show up for one. After a long pause, enough that you don't think T will say it back, he does. But his eye flutter shows you how uncomfortable and resistant he was. I don't think he was sympathetic or emotional about it. They one-arm hug each other, doubling down on that overall reluctance. I think there are like nine different types of hugs, and on the spectrum of most meaningful to least meaningful, I think that one's at or close to the bottom. Cue the music. The ride continues. The song's Midnight Rider, an Allman Brothers song, but I believe this version was by Buddy Miles, named after Buddy Rich, which reminds me, I need to watch Whiplash again. I always circle back to it during the holidays for some reason. Great wide shot as they jam home. One of the best transition shots in TV or film. Elegant and moves you from one moment to the next with these characters. Cut to the next morning. 
from buffoonery to boredom, the regularness of life. Tony at home, disheveled, making himself some coffee, waiting, lost. Somebody or something's going to pay for this. Be on the receiving end of it soon. Cut to Kelly and Chris house hunting. They're in Fairfield near North Caldwell, Baldwin Court. Love how the camera slides to reveal them walking away from his car toward the house. Anytime the camera gives us motion on this show, it's worthwhile to pay closer attention because it could signal something's about to happen. Chris calls the place a stately Wayne Manor. A reference, of course, to Batman. Which is so perfect right now since Terry wrote this and is now penning the new Batman series on HBO. Only in America. The house kind of looks like the place Janice and Richie were going to settle in back in season two. Without even walking in the door, Chris says, we'll take it. Guy must have just read Malcolm Gladwell's Blink or something. All this rapid thinking without thinking this episode. Cut to the St. Elzir festivities. Great overhead shot to set the mood. This whole thing was built from scratch by the production team. Down below, Polly's counting cash forked over by a vendor. Apparently, he's short. Polly's instruction was five days' rent in advance. What he's basically saying is he expects all the rent to be prepaid. Festival's only a week long. That's like your landlord of the bank that owns your mortgage saying, pay one year in advance. The vendor pleads, what if it rains? The Ohio State Fair gives rebates for bad weather. Paulie with a great fucking follow-up. Yet another reason I don't live in Ohio. Just for fun, love Ohio, LeBron James. Does there need to be another reason besides it's Ohio? The vendor's got nothing left. Reaches into his pocket for proof. Over at the next vendor, Phil's getting some Zeppelis. But easy on the sugar, on account he's sweet enough. He's with Jerry Torciano. Tony, Sill, and Perry come up from behind. Phil comments on T's limp. What'd he do now? Silvio calls it a polo injury. And I'd extend my royal family connection here, but it wouldn't work as nice as T would be the king of England, not the prince of Wales, who was, and quite possibly still is, an avid polo player. T does a soprano-style walk and talk with Phil, a couple guys they know, Lebanese or some shit, again, painting the edges, also indicating what kind of terms they're going to demand from them. They diverted a truck filled with Centrum multivitamins. What you might call a healthy score. T says it's got to be distributed out of state because the troopers are on it. Suggests Long Island. Phil asks his end. T says 50-50, but now. Tonight. Neil McCauley over here. Phil says okay, but that John doesn't need to know about it meaning he doesn't need to be cut in on this take. 
skeeving the boss, as Tony Sirico said on the commentary. Tony ponders for a sec. Would the same apply to him too? But then says okay. I mean, he and Silvio already openly acknowledged that Pauly doesn't kick up his full share to Tony. They shake hands and Phil's on it. Tells Albie to get Frankie Cosme on the cell. Albie, of course, is played by the late Chacha Charcha, the mayor of Little Italy. Not literally, but, you know, famously owned a spot there, Chacha's. He was close friends with Tony Danza. Why not slide in a Who's the Boss reference whenever possible? He was his boxing manager, actually. T looks around, sees Juliana Skiff on a ride. He looks as though he'd probably like a do-over on that, if for no other reason than the momentary escapism he so craves this episode in particular. The very kind of release the shot of her is conveying. Cut to Carmella. What a move. What a cut. Skiff to Carm. Exiting the church, headed down to the festivities, she meets up with Finn and Meadow, enjoying their respective foodstuffs. Meadow confirms Karma's was in the church, asking if she prayed. And she gives it to Meadow. You had orthroscopic surgery, you can't bend a knee? <laughs> what a piece of writing. Deadpan, motherly rant. The inflections in her voice as she says it. Gotta say, I was disappointed when Terry didn't react upon hearing that back on the commentary. Bend the knee, of course, also now forever part of the Game of Thrones lexicon. Meadows unaffected. She's over getting into it with Carmella. Notices AIDS mom. Carm says she looks terrible. Hides herself. Partially, no doubt, because of the food on her face. She reluctantly goes over to say hello. Their awkward exchange begins. Liz addresses her by her full name, Carmela Soprano. She says sarcastically, how's your daughter? Hers is dead. She calls Chris, Carm's nephew, remember, a piece of shit. Carm instinctually defends him, says she left him. She really believed that, though. She that naive. She's played the naive card a few times this season, turning a lot of blind eyes since Tony got shot. Liz says she never calls, not birthdays, not Christmas. Carm says it's because they had a very difficult relationship. The Carmella high horse riding high as ever. Then Liz says the FBI came to her house, asked her all kinds of questions, and admitted they think he killed her. Makes me wonder something logistically here. If the feds knew aid was readying Christopher to go in and cooperate with them, why wouldn't they have some kind of eyes on her place in those last critical hours? One unmarked car. Someone to see Silvio pick her up and drive away. 
I mean, in that moment, Silvio's worthy of a tail, right? I know Kubitoso was starved for resources, especially post 9-11. But this was as important a time as any to step up. Securing the heir apparent and his fiancée as cooperators? But I digress. Karma attributes this outcry to Liz being drunk. There's a disconcerting amount of hostility and judgment. Mind you, just moments after she came out of a church where she worshipped. Liz calls it depression. Hasn't had a drink in years. And her regression is a point to pay attention to going forward. Think back to how she looked when Chris first proposed to Adriana. That, by the way, wasn't much better than the way he proposed to Kelly. A leopard never changes its spots. Is that the saying? Dates as far back as the Old Testament. Jeremiah 13, 23. Cut to a rainy night. Torrential downpour. Not festival-going weather. With no rebates for the vendors for bad weather. A raw deal for St. Elzir all around. We see Chris's car exterior. He's with Corky, actor Eduardo Ballerini. I was fascinated to learn that he narrated Carl Uwe Knausgaard's six-volume existential work, My Struggle. I read the first two, but haven't found the intellectual muscle to power through the remaining four. Maybe listening to them and pretending I'm hanging out in the car with Corky will do the trick. Anyway, they're outside a place called Marty's, off Route 17 in Lodi, under a highway, Interstate 80, I believe. I grew up on the other side of that freeway in California, my one literal connective thread to Jersey, besides the show, of course, and all the extended family that lived there. Chris is talking about his friend, Ronnie, from when he was a kid. Hey, I had one of those too. Playing on the linoleum floor with him. The guy was filthy afterward. He's bitching about his mother. She never cleaned. Fucking house was a pigsty. Ronnie's mother made him stop coming over. It was so dirty. It was embarrassing. Don't know why, but I love this anecdote. It's one part relatable for sure. And it makes you sympathetic to Christopher's disposition. It's an explanation of sorts. I took a similar inventory of things when my wife was pregnant with our first child. The whole, this or that was bad in the past. The way I'm going to do it is going to be better. He says things will be different with his kid. He'll be proud of his house. The assumptions that it's a son persist. There's got to be something to that, right? Wait for it. Chris hands them a little less cash than they talked about, but includes some H in exchange. Didn't love that sleight of hand, but par for the course. Corky does his thing while Chris recites the features of his new house. The fuck's the big deal with parquet floors anyway? Mosaic wood? I feel like the only place that belongs is a place like Versailles. Or... Basketball courts, like the Garden, where the Celtics play. 
Chris is talking about all the traditions he's going to start. This while Corky's shooting up. And he's watching. Too good. Says he doesn't want any, but keeps watching. Like a moth to a flame. Then he relents, guesses he could toot some. Half measures. Chris starts remember wenning about his blow days. Says he used to get diarrhea just from the smell of paper money. Because of all the baby laxative in the coke when you snort it. He's talking about cutting agents. Laxatives are one kind. Either used to increase the intensity of the drug, or more often, to extend the dealer's product supply. Chris tells Corky he needs to get to rehab. Narcotics Anonymous or some shit. Right as he himself snorts. Like someone telling you to eat healthy and exercise as they crush a bacon burger after taking a drag from their cigarette. Cue the music. Great song. Been listening to it all week as I prepared this. Dolphins by Fred Neal. Neal was actually fascinated by dolphins generally and devoted a big part of his life to protecting their interests. The lyric, this whole world may never change. Chris will never change. By extension, most of us will never change. Except for Rocky and all the Russians who heard his speech in four. If I can change, and you can change, everybody can change. But here we are, right back to square one. And Tony should have known sooner. It's one of his biggest mistakes as a leader. It's the one thing he never nipped in the bud. Not yet. And the contrast between them saying how much they love each other to this, only a few minutes later, shows you how hollow, how meaningless, how untrue everything he says and does is. You almost want to send out an SOS to Kelly. Get out while you can. Or maybe it's already too late. Adriana actually had the out. Kelly never, now will. Then Chris shoots up. The combination of the sound of the torrential rain and his breathing lulls you into a trance. Then the silence between them before the music fades in again. What a great needle drop. One of the best in-show needle drops that I can remember. Across all shows, not just this one. I learned later that the sequence was actually written specifically for the song. Turns out David Chase made a music video too. Now, it's unclear whether a lot of time has elapsed or a little. But Chris pukes out the window. 
as a semi-truck barrels through his head. Optically, of course. We've seen a similar effect of this a few times. But to Tony. Most notably, Tennessee Moltisanti. Cut to a blurred-out Ferris wheel. Nice touch. This is the sequence gift that keeps on giving. The color, the ethereal music verses. Chris laying on a bench. Makes me think about how out of my mind I'd have to be to lay down on a public bench like that with no sanitary sheath between me and it. He's back at the feast, smoking a cigarette. Love the little detail of him almost subconsciously tapping the ash into an Italian ice cup. The muscle memory, no matter what state of consciousness you're in. He's in another place. Same look I have right after the series is over, but before I start watching it again. That limbo state look. The pipeline of a wave. I'll come back to that thought at the end. He sees an airplane fly by. Later learned that was B-roll that was shot by Phil Abraham after the fact, while scouting the location. A dog runs by. Chris absorbs the colors around him as he pets the dog, feeds him his sub. He's fading, falling hard. Interestingly, nobody noticed or nobody cared. And that's perhaps another nod to the regularness of life. The things we see or don't see and step right over blindly to get to wherever it is we're going. Next, my favorite part, a great shot of him asleep, sitting up as the lights of the festival shut down around him. One, two, three. Love that on a level I can't even reasonably articulate. Other than to say, on my worst days, I sometimes imagine my day ending like that when I remove my glasses to go to sleep. Beating a dead horse here. Bad analogy for this show, I know. But that song was a perfect choice for this moment. Cut to the next morning. The procession begins. A hatless St. Elzeer's on the move. Still sweeping up those dollars like a vacuum, though. People are wondering about the missing hat. Among them, a Mrs. Conti from last episode. Makes you wonder, would that choice to rattle the cage of a church and its parishioners come back to haunt Polly later? Was this whole thing a chance for some kind of spiritual redemption that he didn't capitalize on? Cut to Tony at home, looking around the fridge, not sure what he's looking for, still. Now, I know these moments of suspenseless flux have been happening since time immemorial, but I like to think T invented it. Nobody does it better. Carm is uneasy, but focusing on tea. Asks about a riser getting fixed at the pork store. 
little details painted along the edges of a masterpiece. The stuff that would make Bob Ross smile ear to ear. T asks if she's all right. We know she's got eight on her mind, but will she? Or will she let it die? No pun intended. She preambles it. Uh Uh-oh. Tony readies himself. She says Liz thinks Chris killed Adriana. She weighs in on the thought before letting T react. Says he does have a history of being free with his hands. I always wondered what she specifically was talking about here. She wouldn't know about anybody he's actually killed, would she? Or was she referring to the drug and alcohol abuse that led to him beating her? Especially when he thought she'd been with Tony. Tony says that none of that equates to OJ or Scott Peterson. And if he did it, the feds would know about it. The forensics, the fibers. He's hilariously name-dropping fiber analysis, the microscopic evaluation of evidence at a crime scene, flexing his FBI bona fides. But he says it's all sour grapes. He dumps her daughter and all of a sudden he's Scott Peterson? That guy, by the way, currently incarcerated at San Quentin State Prison in California, killed his pregnant wife and unborn son in 2002. He got the death penalty, but it was overturned. Now, it's important to mention here that T, inadvertently or not, lumped Christopher in the same boat as OJ and Scott Peterson. Not the greatest look. Carm, sharp as a whip, says, I thought aid dumped him. Oops. Tony plays it off well, but he compromised the story right there. He put doubt in Carmela's head. The lies and bullshit were going so well until right here. T bats for Chris. Let's not sabotage his progress. If only T knew that it was too late. Also, this just after he already did just that, sabotage his progress by pouring him a drink and nudging him toward it. And again and again. Carm gets up and walks out of the frame as T sips his wine and thinks about how he might have just botched that encounter. Unable to keep his story straight. How many times, you wonder, has that happened? Cut to the feast of St. Elzir. Polly sees a t-shirt that reads Newark, Old First Ward. Orders that a dozen XL be sent over to Satrials. Tears it off the display, snaps his fingers. The best. Then his doc calls. Says he's headed out, but wanted to give him an update on his PSA test. Short for prostate-specific antigen. The numbers are a little higher than he'd like but thinks it's likely just inflammation, but could be prostate cancer. So to rule that out, he wants to schedule him for a precautionary biopsy. Paulie's face. Having recently experienced a member of my family being diagnosed with pretty serious 
cancer. Sirico's face here really rung true. Cut to Janice and the kids. Bobby Jr.'s breaking her balls about the rides. She makes him do a teacup one with her baby sister. There's a malfunction, a sudden stop. Before you know it, a kid with a bloody nose and mouth, and I think two missing front teeth, when Bobby shows up to rescue his damsel in distress. Cut to Polly at home watching TV. Something about temperature guns. Little Polly calls. Note the white streak in his hair, by the way, becoming more prominent with age. A little Polly, indeed. Tells him about the incident at the festival. This is so great. Some people got hurt. Where's the guy owns it? He's talking to the cops. Fine, fuck it. What do you want from me? It's pretty bad, Paulie. Lady broke her wrist. Some Puerto Rican kid lost some, some teeth. Oh, what am I, a fucking dentist? <laughs> I don't know. I thought you'd want to know. Come down or something. Uh, he's got to be up in the morning and wants nothing to do with it. Unmutes his TV. Probably about to place an order for that thingamajig on the screen. Cut to dinner at Tony's. The whole family. Janice recounting her experience. Kid could have died. She's lucky Tony didn't bring up Harpo right there. Low-hanging fruit. Chris makes racial jokes. He and Kelly chuckle. Note, Carm checks him out curiously. As if studying or profiling a witness or suspect or something. Tony tells Janice to leave it alone. Likely because he doesn't want any unnecessary attention. Remember her cause, celebras? Meadow says they're entitled to damages. There was negligence. She's right. Negligence requires duty, breach, causation, and damages. This checks all the boxes, more or less. Bobby calls the vendor a scumbag hillbilly, says he would have kicked his ass. Yeah, and what did you do? Nothing. I was taking Sophia to the bathroom. Oh, did she learn nothing in anger management? Also, note how she's starting to rub her neck after internalizing what Meadow just said. Kelly says the wine's delicious. T says he feels like it's lost some of its pop. Probably the company he was with. Or, also equally likely, the thrill of momentary abance from his regular life is what gave the wine that extra juice in the first place. Cut to a Jeep pulling up at a motel. Janice is wearing a neck brace, clearly sensing there's an economic opportunity here for her now, thanks to Meadow. Bobby knocks on a door, the door of the guy who ran the teacup ride. Smacks him with a baton. How do he find his room and place where he was staying at? Why am I even asking that question at this point? It's the meanest we've ever seen, Bobby. Says he wants 25000 cash. New Jersey has stringent liability laws, meaning insurance isn't certain. Negligence is harder to prove. Guy starts giving his own hillbilly elegy. Complains that the guy who hired him wouldn't spring for repairs and didn't want his A fleet. That was sent to the Sorghum Festival in Atlanta, which is actually closer to a place called Blairsville, Georgia. But what are you going to do? Bobby's in some kind of shock state. 
not only at what he just did, but also that he's trying to process what the guy said. It all came at him so fast. Not like those Lionels. Slow and steady. Cut to the festival. A cannoli eating contest. Again, a creature of the Feast of San Gennaro. Ready, set, munch. We overhear cocksucker in the distance. Bobby storms in like a freight train. By the way, Donald Sutherland is the official steward of that word, at least for the year 2020, via his performance in The Undoing. Yeah, I'm watching it. It's been one of those years. Anyway, Bobby. Hey, cocksucker! You hire some fly-by-night piece of shit and you don't tell nobody! Oh, Bobby! What the fuck you talking about? You know what I'm talking about, you cheap fuck! No! Bobby, come on! Hey, everybody wants to get rich, but you don't scrimp on safety. Mind your business, Bobby! My baby girl is in that car. You owe me money, Paulie. I owe you shit. My wife's got nerve damage! Well, cut too. Get the fuck off me! Guy's chasing it hard. Jan really got to him. This is unnatural. Grabbing every which way. Paulie unrattled by Junior's piss boy, fuck you and fuck her too. In an episode where Paulie is beaten down into submission emotionally, he doesn't give an inch to Bobby Bacala. Bobby's like Tommy Gunn in Five right here. I want my respect. And Paulie's like Rocky. We'll come and get it. Paulie notices everybody looking at him. Go ahead, it's over. Crown the winner. Talking about the cannolis, but he could have just as easily meant himself. Paulie at his best. Cut to Melfi's office. They're talking about St. Elzir's. Thousands of people either praying or eating. Tells her about Janice. She says God. He says he wasn't there, just Elzir. He makes her laugh more than once on a roll today. It's also definitely a ride of its own for him. A form of release. They talk about rides. She says, what do you think that is? They mean. He says it's what people do because they're bored. Are you bored? Am I bored? I got shot in the pancreas and I recovered. No brain damage from the septic shock like everybody figured I'd have. You know my feelings. Every day is a gift. It just doesn't have to be a pair of socks. Terry says that's his favorite line in the whole episode and credits it to Chase. T says it's the human condition but doesn't really know what he means by that. An interesting moment because it doesn't have closure or resolution. Rather, it's a slice of their session and a window to his mind. He's what you call thinking out loud. They're not having a conversation so much as she's providing space for Tony to put pieces of himself on the table and examine them. Cut to the festival grounds. Paulie's on the phone, anxiously checking up on the results of his biopsy. This is cancer we're talking about. Love the way the camera moves in on him. He hangs up, 
orders an espresso, instructs the barista not to touch the lemon rind with his fingers. This refers to the lemon that lined cups of espresso back in the day, thought to be a disinfectant of sorts. Now, if it's used at all, it's mostly to accent or punctuate the espresso and depends on the barista. He bumps into Nucci. She's on one of her outings. He learns she's still at Green Grove. She brings up the teacup ride. It's all over the news. She says he needs to make a novena. That's a special prayer over the course of nine days. A long-form penance. He let St. Elzir go without his hat. But he goes back to square one with her. Fuck the two of yous. Fakes. This as... Sir, your espresso. Just then, his espresso is served. The festival music augments this moment so much. She sobs softly as she walks off. Cut to a dinner with the crew. A bachelor party for already married man, Christopher Moltisanti. Little Carmine weighs in. A man is not complete until he's married. Then, he's finished. A high watermark for Carmine as he's able to get through a complete sentence. Polly comes in late. There's an awkward silence all around. Bobby bristles at the sight of him. He gets up and says he's got to go. The kids. It's that easy? Later in the bathroom, Tony walks in on Polly, and they have words about Bobby. T calls him Brownie, a time capsule reference to the guy in charge of damage control after Hurricane Katrina. FEMA director. His last name was Brown. T says to settle shit with Bobby and settle it now. And not just because his sister's affected. Let me ask you a question about the feast. Do we need negative press? With all the competition out there for the entertainment dollar, DVDs, the internet. Reed Hastings over here, arguing accurately, his only real competition is video games. Polly acquiesces, understands the bad look it creates. He wonders about the regular ride guy, the one they had last year. Polly says he was too expensive. Note, he's fixated on his hair. He's into combing it more than ever before. Literally anything to escape the box he's in. Also, he tacitly approves of Polly's cost-saving measures here, even though the rest of the world doesn't. Bigger overall cut for him. Polly says his profits are shrinking to nothing. Not like when T's dad had it. If it don't work as a business, get rid of it. Not for nothing, but a lot of that crease goes in your pocket. You know. Cut your losses. Paulie says a lot of the feast goes in your pocket. He points his finger. I mean, he always points his finger, but he pointed his finger at the boss here. Says he's got a lot on his mind. What now? Tony wonders. He tells him about the prostate cancer. Maybe prostate cancer. I'm afraid maybe the thing may have stasticized. Jesus, will you listen to yourself? A choice mispronunciation. Pauly says he'd rather face 10 guys with shivs than something he can't see. Well said. T offers some perspective. It's a biopsy. Get a grip. Negative thinking can bring this shit on too, as he wags his finger. 
Enough with this cancer bullshit. Back to business. Meeting recap. Settle things with Bobby. And Eddie Lind is coming over from PA with an envelope. Meet him at the Bing. Cut to T's basement. He's stocking his wine shelf when Chris walks down. There he is, the bad lieutenant, Chris says. Reference to a 1992 film that, like this episode, is chock full of religious iconography, including a vision of Christ, which is a nice link to what Polly sees in a couple three seconds. Tony shows him a bottle. Chris says he sold his. 300 for the five cases. Every penny counts. Small talk. Says he had a heater put in at the Bloomfield wire room. Guys were complaining. That's the sports book he's talking about. Long silences. Trying to find that spark they had. But the best they can come up with is repair and maintenance talk. What's new with you? Copacetic. Until this show, I always thought that was a bad word, but it actually means everything's great. T jokes about the Vipers. Reaching. They go back and forth, essentially rehashing their whole dinner conversation. Only, the second time around, it's not as good. Reminds me of Naval Ravikant expressing his distaste for sequels on a podcast I heard. You've already said what you're going to say. It's never going to be as good in subsequent expressions. Not as meaningful. Not as pure. Especially not after Chris just rapped getting strung out again. More awkward silences. Then we cut to Polly, where the awkwardness ensues. Tossing and turning in bed. It's 2.59 a.m. And then it's 3 a.m. We see it turn. We hear a phone ring. We're not sure if it's exactly three or a little after at this point. But the thought is nevertheless planted. And that's the whole idea. It's Paulie again, calling the doctor's office. Wants to be put through, like Bill Murray. And what about Bob? Cut to the bing, moments later. Still early. Polly unlocks, walks in, stops, pauses, notices something. Turns around, sees Mother Mary on the dance floor. That's a real person, by the way, not a statue. His eyes dart around. She's gone. He goes to the back. The guy from PA shows up. No envelope. Yet. But the key takeaway. Three o'clock has religious significance. And the fundamental connection here is the Holy Trinity. Among all the other variants and messages we've seen over the course of six seasons. Cut to the feast one more time. Nice symmetry to close out the episode. Elzir is covered in money at this point. Made me think for a split second where those dollars were going to end up. Bobby and family and Tony and Carm are walking through. Nika wants to ride the teacups again, even though she cried for three days after. She walks over to it, cries some more. Bobby placates her with Cracker Jacks. Then T to the rescue. 
picks her up, and flies her around. Great moment. Sadly, when you watch it, you also think something bad's about to happen, but it doesn't. Turns out it's just a fleeting moment. The only way he can get out of his NUI for a beat. Cut to Nucci, watching Lawrence Welk, Channel 55. Reruns, though. His show ended in 1982. Paulie Knox. There's some Norwegian music in the background. First thing she says is she doesn't want to argue. He's silent. Comes in. He's back to the only person he knows of that ever loved him. His safe place. Looks around. Looks at the TV. No doubt a different one than the one he threw out the window. And no longer a flat screen. His face communicates, in part, that displeasure. He sits. She offers him some cookies. He passes. And they sit together. This isn't new to either of them. They've done this more than a few times. Likely years. And it's quite possibly the only constant thing in his life. He notices wind gusting outside. Nucci's a living embodiment of the Ojibwe saying here, as it applies to Polly. We pull away to the sound of the Norwegian music in the background. This pullback is great because it accomplishes two things. It gives us a chance to connect any missing dots in the show. And to give us a moment to reflect on our own constant spaces or constant moments like this. Our safe places. In light of the year we've all endured, here's hoping you've all been able to spend some extra time in those places and spaces too. And come out ahead because of it. Johnny Thunder's pipeline comes back again. We heard it at the festival once too. In surfing, a pipeline is the hollow formed when a large wave breaks. The wave of this season and the series at large is breaking. We're in that pipeline. There's a moment in the tunnel where everything freezes. Right before the wave sorts out who makes it through and who gets crushed by the weight, by the pressure, the force of it. No matter which way you fare, the wave gives us that moment every time. The characters all get it, all feel it. And so do we. The waves of the regularness of life has had a couple few pipelines. For me personally, this project has been one of them. A beautiful, transitory moment that somehow, some way, I'm still tunneling through. Wishing you all a happy Thanksgiving and happy holidays. That's all I got. 
Thanks for listening. See you next time. I wanna